Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach at the Naval Institute. With me is my usual partner, Captain Bill Hamlet, USN Retired, Intel Officer Extraordinaire, and the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. It's we a are... very special edition. It is, for several reasons. First, because we're at West, so the annual AFSIA U.S. Naval Institute West Conference out here at the San Diego Convention Center. There's thousands of people here, hundreds of exhibitors, uh, lots of great panelists and speakers and keynote speakers. Uh, we heard Admiral Swift yesterday as the uh, luncheon speaker. Uh, we had him on the podcast last uh, Wednesday talking about his article in the February issue of Proceedings, uh, Mastering the Art of Command and Control. So it was great to, to see him again. Uh, and today we have a special guest, Vice Admiral Moore, the uh, commander of Naval Sea Systems Command, who was a panelist on one of the, the panels out here uh, today and uh, agreed to join us on the podcast and talk about the, the state of uh, shipbuilding in the Navy. Okay. Thanks, Bill. But first, in, in terms of truth in advertising, Admiral Moore and I have known each other since the summer of 1978. Um, we were in 21st Company together. Um, so uh, we go way back. Um, uh, when I got to the USNI team back in uh, last summer, I had an office call with Admiral Muller, and at that time I asked him if he would be uh, interested in doing either an editorial board or a podcast with us. So he very graciously um, took us up on the offer. Uh, he, he is a super busy guy. He, right after he finishes his podcast, he's headed for uh, the airport to fly to Hawaii. Yeah. Um, so we thank you, sir, for your time, and it's great to see you here in person. Sure. Um, so you just finished a panel. Um, talking about some of the issues of the day. Um, we've heard, as Bill mentioned, we had everybody from DepSecDef Shanahan to Admiral Swift and uh, some others uh, that have been keynote speakers all talking about budget, sequester. One of the themes that resonates is speed, um, that they're talking about what's going to be different in, going forward in terms of the acquisition cycle. And they always, they seem to be pointing to this thing about speed. Um, so as a first sort of discussion item, I know that you very much had a hand, and this is putting it very um, uh, understating it, uh, in the getting CV-78 out, out the door. Um, so where are we with CV-78 here in layman's terms, in yep. terms of the ability to have an air wing and sure. shoot heavy airplanes and, and so forth and so on? And how does that feel in terms of how it got through your purview uh, relative to speed? Sure. So the Ford uh, CVN78 uh, is uh, doing well. She's, uh, you know, we commissioned her uh, last summer, and uh, since then we have uh, been out at sea uh, for six different at sea periods, doing different testing of the ship. Uh, we, uh, uh, the thing that's got probably gotten the most uh, press over the years is, uh, you know, her new catapult and arresting gear system, EMALS and AG. We had a goal before we took her back in for her post-shakedown ability, which starts here in, in March, to try and get uh, around 400 uh, takeoffs and landings on the system to just kind of continue to ring it out and get some more reliability data on it as we head into the post-shakedown period of testing. And we were able to get significantly more than that. I think the exact number was somewhere over 600. Wow. But the system worked well, so uh, we're very pleased with how EMALS and AEG worked. Um, it uh, it's a you know it's a new system. It's a it's a more complex system, obviously, than than the steam catapults, which we've had you know 50 or 60 years of runtime with. But it has a lot of capability that the steam catapults doesn't have, and so this is uh, over the last uh, six months to be able to get out there and operate it and learn things about the system 
which we'll now incorporate into the CVN79, which is about 70% uh, built right now, and then uh, roll into to Ford as she's in her post-shakedown availability. That will that will be important. She's also uh, we got to really test out the dual-band radar, which is uh, kind of a, it's its first of its kind. Uh, on that ship, which uh, encompasses both uh, kind of, uh, it has two radars associated with a volume search, which is your kind of traditional surface search, volume search, SPS 48, 49 radar, and then we call multifunction radar, which is kind of your, your, your what you would have said is, uh, uh, is your missile direction, et cetera, that go, and so it's all built into one, and so it's a very complex radar. Ford will be the only ship with that radar uh, because uh, it was put on that ship at the time that we thought we were going to build 28 DDG-1000s and we were just going to leverage off of uh, that ship and uh, when we took DDG-1000 down from 28 down to 9 and then subsequently down to 3 uh, and then cut the dual band radar in half and DDG-1000 just has one of the two pieces on it. Ford was left with the only ship with the full radar. So it's a very capable but very expensive radar and so as we move on to CVN-79 and future ships in the Ford class, we're going to go to something called the Enterprise Air Surveillance Radar, ESER, which will also be backfit on the Nimitz class and is going to be the radar of choice for our big deck MFIP. So, uh, But having said that, uh, the radar pro performs superbly. We were able to do all its detector engages, and it's it's ready to go. So the ship's going to go into a uh, about a one-year post-shakedown availability at, back at Newport News Shipbuilding to finish uh, the advanced weapons elevators, do some additional modernization uh, that we need to do on the ship and then she will come out and uh, she will get into the um, you know all the the live fire test and evaluation that goes with a first of kind anything and she'll do that for uh, 18 to 24 months and then we will start working her up ready to deploy so uh, uh, it's an exceptional ship uh, I've, I've had a chance to ride her for sea trials and uh, the uh, war fighters if you're a combatant commander you're going to want a Ford in your your region, if you're an aviator flying off the new catapults rest of the year, you're going to like to fly an offer. And if you're a crew member with all the way the ship's laid out uh, in terms of the amenities of the crew and uh, just capabilities today that don't exist on on ships today, you're going to like operating on the ship. So we're, we're very encouraged with the shakedown period. Uh, we're looking forward to get her into about a 12-month period here to finish up some of the work and then um, get her get her out to sea and, and get her out and get her deployed probably in the 2020-2021 time frame. Sir, how do you see the, the rest of the Ford class uh, coming online in terms of uh, schedule, ahead of schedule, on yep. schedule, and, and how about budget too? Are, they, are, they, are, are you going to start to contain the cost so that the next units of the, of the class are on schedule and, and at budget? Yeah, well, Kennedy, the second one, CVN79, is, uh, is on track uh, for her delivery. Um, and she is right now tracking about 18% uh, cheaper than... Um, than, than 78 was and if you go look from a shipbuilding perspective uh, and kind of the step down and learning you get from the first ship to the second ship that's uh, that's a pretty historic it's better than any other ship class that, that we can see so uh, we certainly Ford there was a lot to learn on the first ship of the class sure. uh, the way that it was budgeted uh, the way that um, if you recall on Ford we were originally going to build this class over three ships and kind of slowly introduce some of the technology into the ship and ultimately, the third ship of the class was supposed to have all the technology. And then, uh, you know, sector, then Secretary Rumsfeld decided, hey, I, I'm looking for a leap ahead ship. So we made a last minute change to incorporate all the technology in the first ship. And so, uh, you know, we, there were some growing pains associated with that. that but I think that means it, accepting some risk. Yeah, we did. And uh, I think, but, you know, in the long run, we're going to look back 
And, and uh, despite the challenges we've had with Ford, with the cost and schedule, I think we're going to be happy with the capability we have, and we've learned from that, and now we're ahead of the game. So 79's on track. Uh, we'll, we will um, you know, we'll sign a construction contract for a CV and 80, the Enterprise, uh, the eighth, I believe, ship uh, named Enterprise, and I, the third aircraft carrier, very proud that the third ship of the class will be named Enterprise. So we'll start cutting steel and incorporate those lessons learned there. Uh, Newport News Shipbuilding is going into a very digital age of shipbuilding. And so CVN80 is supposed to be the first ship where we're, it's going to be paperless. We're not going to have deck plate drawings. We're going to give people iPads uh, to go down on the deck plate to build the ship. And I'm, I'm really excited about the possibilities for you know, cost reductions on 80. Uh, CVN81, there's been a lot of discussion you've probably seen about, you know, should we buy two carriers at a time, CV80 80 and 81? Uh, similar to what we did with CVN 72 and 73 and 74 and 75 back in the Reagan eras, which would that be called a multi-year? Yeah, is that multi-year, what that is? is yeah, that we the call label for a, we use it. Yeah, for a carrier, it's really just called a two-ship buy because a multi-year okay. in DDG terms or SSN terms, you know, is is you're, you're procuring many of them over a, over a several-year period, and so because of the price of carrier, we don't typically uh, commit to buying more than two at a time so we, we it is a multi-year but we've in the carrier lingo a two ship buy is as close as we're going to get to a multi-year but but there is significant there are significant efficiencies of scale there we think we can take a billion and a half dollars out of the two ships by buying them uh, at the same time and so uh, you know we're going to work our way through that we're hopeful as we get into the next budget cycle that uh, you know that will gain some traction for us but in the meantime we're we're off and moving on cvn 80 regardless well, it's interesting when you talk about the radar system and how originally we were going to build it uh, because it was going to be efficiencies of scale, economics of scale relative to DDG-1000. Um, it seems we're challenged to build a system of systems just because of the nature of the, the acquisition process. You know, I worked V-22. You know, we had an airplane before IOC that had obsolescence issues with a lot of the components, right? And so that's sort of an irony. Um, that 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 you the program manager deals with and the program office deals with on a daily basis. So as we're building towards a 355 notionally 355 ship navy by 2050, how are we going to avoid um, that sort of episodic, not system of systems? You know, we we yep. have discussed FFX or FFG21 uh, um, in in the podcast before. I've heard some, um, you know, recently retired uh, high-ranking officers talk about how I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with DG, DDG 1000. Um, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with LCS. It, it doesn't seem like we're, you know, some of this is a rough head legacy. Some of this is, you know, the, the, the shipbuilding plans from years and years ago. Um, how do we create like a cohesive strategy, right, going by you. So I think uh, there's a couple pieces to this. One, uh, you correctly pointed out the challenge with shipbuilding in particular is that the time from initial concept design until the time you can have the first ship ready uh, or the second or third ship, it's a fairly lengthy time. And so when we even today when we talk about rapid prototyping and speeding up acquisition, uh, that might mean that uh, instead of designing the aircraft carrier in 1996 and delivering it for the first one in 2017, you know, maybe we cut that time down to 12 years instead of 20 years. It's still a pretty lengthy period of time. And so you're always going to face, in today's world in particular, with the complexity of the ships and the amount of automation and computers, you're always going to face this challenge of, of uh, obsolescence. I think the key is, and I think what you have to do is, uh, you have to build the platforms uh, in with 
with a lot of space and a lot of weight and a lot of power built into the ship to provide you flexibility for going forward. One of the questions that got asked in the panel, which I didn't get to answer a little bit more on, was, um, you know, this, uh, how, do you, how do you pace the threat? And in reality, is if you were to draw, you know, our, our knowledge of the threat today and then straw, try and have that over a timeline, you know, we, I think what we build today, we build for the threat that we know today and, we, and for a threat that we probably have a pretty good idea of what it's going to look like five years from now. But if anybody thinks they know what your threat's going to look like 10, 15, 20 years down the road, they're kidding themselves. And so we see that over and over again. I mean, we, when, I don't think anybody thought when we built DDG-51 in 1989 that it would be the nation's primary ballistic missile defense platform. It's a, it's, it's a, what, it, what it points out is the versatility of the Aegis radar system and vertical launch and open architecture. So I think we have to learn from that, and we have to, we have to design ships in such a way that they are capable of keeping up with technology. So you have to build them with open architecture, you have to use cots where you can, and then you have to you have to build them with with space and weight margins, and in particular, and power, so that as the threats evolve, then you can come in and plug and play and build things into the ship. You know, the aircraft carrier, in many ways, is the most transformational platform we have because the combat system is the planes, and the combat system can evolve. So the reason we keep aircraft carriers for 50 years is because we know how to maintain them, but more importantly, we know that you know if you looked at what flew off of Nimitz in 1975 or when you were flying uh, and you look at what's going to fly off of Nimitz and she's going to be around until 2025 the change is remarkable so to, to I think the fate to meet the challenges that war that you're talking about in terms of obsolescence you're never going to get rid of it completely uh, just because the turn circle on technology is so fast today that if you're keeping a platform for 35 40 years you're going to have to factor obsolescence into your strategy I think the key is build the platform in such a way that you don't try and uh, try and guess what the threat is for the entire life of the ship, but you build it in a way so as the threat evolves, you can the platform can evolve as well. This is kind of, you know, Admiral Greenard's, uh, you know, payloads over platform, or platform over payload. The, I forget which way he had it, but build the platform and then let it evolve to the threat. So if you look at DDG-1000 or Ford, for instance, you know, massive amounts of electrical power. A generation, and I believe we're heading into an era of, of you know, the age of electric ships, where you know electric drive. That's where we're going with Columbia class uh, DDG 1000s electric drive. But you know, take a look at laser technology and where we are today, and some of the the weapon systems we're building. It's not hard to imagine that 10, 15 years from now, we will have evolved lasers to the point where you can get rid of CWIS and RAM and some of these close-in weapon systems. And then the thing comes down is, can you generate enough power so that the ship is capable of doing that? And, and Ford and DDG-1000 in particular generate massive amounts of electrical power that will make those ships viable, you know, for, for the, into the next century. Now, you know, DDG-1000 is a little bit of a different challenge there because of the fact that we only built three of them. But, but clearly that's the way we want to go about building ships going forward. So remind the audience why we're only building three DDG-1000s. What happened there programmatically? Well, I think programmatically it just became cost. Um, you know, I think uh, that, uh, you know, we, we put so much technology into that ship and the challenges of building it uh, became difficult. And we probably wanted so much new stuff into the ship right off the bat that it, it, the, the pace of the technology change out, our, you know, outstripped our ability to estimate what it would cost and what it would cost and, to, and then what it would cost to build it. 
And so I, my analogy to DD-1000 is similar to Seawolf. I mean, we Seawolf is a great platform. I mean, those three are kind of boutique submarines today, but do mission sets that nobody else can do. But they became, at the time, if you think back, we cut it, the Seawolf class to three for a reason. They just became too expensive. But what the submarine community did was they went and took the what they learned from Seawolf and took the best of Seawolf and immediately incorporated it into the Virginia class submarine, which a lot of people would tell you is a model acquisition program. And I think what the surface Navy is going to do today is we're going to go take DD-1000 and we're going to go learn from it. And then we're going to go take what we've learned off there, rapidly put that into the future service combatant. So, I, you know, while uh, we didn't build a lot of them, I think, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, when we're looking at the next future surface combat, we're going to look back at DDG-1000 just as we did with the Seawolf submarine. And we're going to say, you know, we learned a heck of a lot of new stuff here, in particular in stealth um, and uh, some of the things that go on in the propulsion plant on that ship, electrical power generation. And those are all attributes you're, you're going to see, I believe, on the next generation uh, future surface combatant and probably things that are likely to get incorporated into the next frigate design as well. So in the pages of proceedings and also on the podcast uh, and in our blog, there's been a lot of discussion about littoral combat ships, um, about the, the cost of them, the cost overruns, about how many we're building, about the lethality, the place they have uh, you know, in a strike group or not in a strike group, what the role, what their, their capabilities are. Uh, so what's the current status in terms of how many LCSs we're, we're building and what's the plan to backfit them with some significant lethality? I think the program of records, we're going to build 32 of them. Um, and uh, you've seen some of the things we're doing with CRAM, and we're looking at a whole host of things that we, uh, you know, we could do to them. I mean, do we want to put a couple of, could we put a couple of vertical launch cells on there? Could, uh, you know, some of the things that we could strap on in terms of additional weapons, do we want to upgrade the radar? And there's a whole host of things that, um, you know, the Pentagon's looking at right now. I think the C-frame itself is pretty versatile. Uh, you can, and you can, you know, I'll say this publicly. You can put me down in the category of a fan of LCS. I, I think that uh, that that we're going to look back and wonder what the, all the fuss was about here ten years from now. I think, you know, the ship was not designed to go in and slug it out. I think people forget that. People also forget that when we designed the first four ships, there was this emphasis on rapid prototyping, get these ships out there, let's see what they can do. The first four ships were R&D platforms you know much like we do with airplanes and so we went out and we built four ships and we made them r&d platforms and we you know we faced some challenges with them and so people are using those first four platforms as uh, i think people that use the first four as a reason to say oh we should get rid of lcs missed the point which was we knew we were building r&d platforms we knew we were going to learn some stuff there you know but fort worth just came back had a very successful deployment so we've used it successfully uh, we certainly have had some growing pains with it um, the cost is stable. I mean, the initial cost estimates on that ship were way too low. I mean, we started out thinking, hey, I want to build a $200 million ship. That was unrealistic for a ship that you wanted it to do the mission sets that we want it to do today or the mission sets perhaps that we want it to do in the future. So, you know, in, in hindsight, uh, promising that we were going to build a $215 million ship um, you know, looking back at it, that was probably a mistake on the Navy's part. But uh, we've got the ships in serial production now. Uh, the cost is stabilized for both versions down in the $400 million range. And, you know, for the price we're paying for them, they're a pretty capable ship. And, you know, if we're going to get to 355 ships, 
I believe, you know, LCS has got to be a, a portion of that. And then, you know, we'll, we'll leave it up to the, the operators. Uh, I'm just the, you know, the guy that builds them. We'll leave it up to the operators on the concept operations. But I think uh, that we're going to see that ship class to be pretty successful going forward. And, you know, we'll see. It'll be a compliment to the new frigate, whatever that turns out to be. So I, I think in the end, um, the more we operate it and the more we can demonstrate its capability, uh, the, you know, the better off we're going to be. I, I often remind people... Uh, when I was, you know, uh, having a lot of discussions on the Ford with, with over on the Hill, I would take these three newspaper articles from the Washington Post over with me, and I would show the headlines. And the headline would say, one of the headlines in this article from the Washington Post said, a procurement nightmare. The other one said, building a, Volks, uh, building a Cadillac when you needed a Volkswagen. The other one said, the Navy's acquisition black hole. And, of course, everybody thought, that I was talking about the Ford class because uh, I was the BO. And then I would say, hey, that 65 ships later, DDG-51's doing pretty well. <laughs> okay, so, you know, we don't build toasters. That's what I tell people in NAS TV. These are complex, state-of-the-art weapon systems that nobody else in the world can build. And so, yeah, we don't always get it right the first time. So I'd ask for a little bit of patience. I think we're going to get the cost right, and I think we're going to get the capability right. And if you go look at whether you're talking Super Hornet or F-14, or, uh, you know, Ford-class carriers or Nimitz-class carriers or DG-51, you know, the, our, our track record is pretty good. We, we have challenges initially. We ring those challenges out, and then we build some pretty damn good uh, weapon systems out there, whether it's on the aircraft side or the house or the ship side. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm bullish on, on LCS. So of the 32 ships, uh, do you think that there's going to be mission modules built for each one of them? They'll each have more than one mission module or are we going to have one mission module for each one and how many do you think will be asuw platforms and how many will be mine warfare platforms yeah I, i'll leave that up to the to the warfighter here i think uh you know we've they've done uh, ammo round previously and ammo brown now will obviously uh, looking at the concept of operations i think they're leaning now you know the con initial concept to be able to swap all three mission modules out proved to be more challenging than we probably thought it would be and so you know, that's, that thinking's evolving, but I think where they're headed is, you know, they'll have, you know, a, a ship will be dedicated to a particular mission, and uh, the, what they're doing with that and what they're, they're doing in terms of blue and gold crews to change out of the way they were doing, I think that it's all evolving. Again, you know, it was an idea on paper. Uh, we got it out there. It didn't quite work. Uh, we've learned from it, and I think we're evolving. So I think the, you know, you'd be better off to ask uh, Emil Brown, who's a surfer, what's his plans for moving LCS forward, but it certainly changed from the initial concept of operations. So the summer of 2017 was pretty brutal in the 7th Fleet AOR. Yeah. Um, with the, uh, and we've, we've talked extensively on the show about the, the two mishaps and uh, some of the other uh, effects of training tracks and this sort of thing, but what, what is the CISCOM's role yeah. uh, in, mm -hmm. in writing the, the ship, uh, to use a bad pun, um, yeah. where, where, where does the CISCOM fit when, when things are going uh, in that, in that yeah. way? So I, I think that's a fantastic question. And in fact, one of the things that I've emphasized to my workforce is that, look, if you think that, um, that McCain and Fitzgerald were, are fleet issues only and that, that we, you know, we don't have a role in this and that this couldn't happen to us, you, know, you need to rethink that. We, we have taken this very, very seriously in NAVC as to what's our role here, what can we do to help prevent that. First and foremost, as I talked about here on the readiness side, is on-time delivery of ships and submarines. We've got to get these ships and submarines out of their maintenance availabilities on time so that the fleet's not forced to kind of a Hobson's choice, which is, hey, do I either delay the deployment or do I compress the training cycle? You, you need both. And so 
you know, if we're delivering them late, we really put them in, in a bad position. So first, I think the first thing is on the maintenance and readiness side of the house, we have to focus on that. The other thing I would tell you is that uh, as I looked at McCain in particular, and then looked at a little of Fitzgerald, uh, one of the things that's come clear to me is that there's, there's a disconnect between the, the, uh, the, the complexity level of the systems, there's a disconnect between what the systems commanders provide uh, to the kids on the deck plate and their ability to operate them. Because we, in many cases, design these systems that have a lot of flexibility and capability into them, but they're pretty complex at the end of the day when you look at it. They're not complex to the person that designed them because and for those of you that you know, opened, you know, opened, ever opened up a box to put something together and say, who the hell put these instructions together? Well, the person that put the instructions together knew full well what they were doing because they were an expert on the system. I think we have got to make our systems, at least at the interface where the operators are, simpler to operate. And my simple analogy is a car. You can go, there are thousands of different makes and models of cars, but the steering wheel is in pretty much the same place and the gas pedal's in the same place and the, the brake pedal's in the same place. Now, the, what you do when you turn the, what happens after you turn the wheel, uh, it doesn't matter to the user. And in fact, it may be different on every car. There's no steering column anymore. Uh, I kid my staff all the time, the younger staff, when I say, you know, when you step on a gas pedal, there's no carburetor. And they go, what's a carburetor? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, there's a spring there and it's digital. And so, you know, we designed these systems with all this flexibility, and in fact, I think they, the systems became too complex. And so, we've got to look at the interfaces of some of the basic stuff, like helm control and lee helm control, and we've got to make those systems, the interfaces of those systems, I think, simpler for the sailor. And then we've got to get the systems command, we've got to include, you know, human factors engineering, human, human systems engineering, if you will, into the designs up front. We need to bring the operators in when we're building these things. Uh, we need to test them out before we put them out into the fleet. I went out to, to see McCain and Fitzgerald uh, in December, walked three other DDGs that were in maintenance at SRF, uh, and every one of them had a different bridge, system, bridge control system. And so you're asking, hey, a DDG, why would three different DDG-51s have three different bridge systems? Wow. So it's no wonder that you had some challenges. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is some standardization on some of these, on some of the things. So, I don't know why we can't do a, go to a common bridge system. I mean, does so, this go back to what we were talking about before with DDG one thousand and obsolescence and the time, yeah. the it, time to design? No, and, I don't and think procure. it's. I don't think it's the time. I think it's we we, we make them complex and, and we make we 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 do it because we can. Uh, we have great engineers, and we say, you know what, hey. If I could, it's like my iPhone. My kids who are 25, 27 can can do almost anything with their phone. I just want to make a call and text, <laughs> you know. And so they'll do these things with their iPhone. And Dad, don't you know the phone can do this? And I don't really well, care. Or listen to music too. Or listen to music. Listen to music. Yeah. But think about it. So you know, really on the bridge, you know, you really want the helms, and all you really want them to do is you know, when he turns the the, the helm, you know, the, to the right, the star, ship goes to starboard, and and you want the lee helm. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like the old engine order. So let, again, let's remind the audience what you're talking about. So on McCain, yeah. there was a real systems misunderstanding that caused that, that ship to round up. So Absolutely. So what, what happened, happened on McCain, just simply, you know, the system was set up with a helm and a lee helm, and they had touchscreens. And it was very flexible. You could control both steering and speed from the helm, or you could control both steering and, and, and uh, speed. speed from the lee helm. You yeah. had a choice. So the normal configuration was that you had one helmsman and he had both on one panel. 
uh, as they started getting into traffic and the CO was um, worried about him being distracted, he ordered him to split out uh, the helm and Lee helm and put the steering, the, the, the speed control over with, with the uh, Lee helmsman. In order to do that, he had to do a series of drop-down menus and transfer things over. And in the process of doing that, he inadvertently transferred steering control over to the Lee helm and transferred only one of the two engines over to the Lee helm. So, so Lee Helm did not realize the, he had the control. Helms, of the Hel- the, well, the Lee Helm did not realize that he had steering control, okay. which he doesn't didn't control with a wheel. He controlled it with a, a touch screen. Okay. And he didn't realize that he only had control of one of the two engines. And so uh, when the ship started drifting left uh, and the CO told the helmsman to come right, he moved the wheel. And, of course, the ship the rudder didn't respond because he didn't have control. So he called away a loss of steering. Well, he, they never lost steering. It was just over the Liam. The CEO's response, you know, was to slow the ship, which was probably the correct response. Problem was, when he slowed the ship from 20 knots down to six knots, uh, the Lehams one only had control of the port engine. So he lowered the, the port engine went to ahead one third. The starboard engine stayed at 20 knots. And so, if you remember, all the, that only made the situation worse. And it, before they, by the time they figured out where everything was, it was too late. And, and obviously the tragic collision was killed 10 of our sailors. So again, um, you know, there's a whole host of training issues that go along with that. And you could say, well, you know, put a qualified person on there. Uh, if you train properly, you should be able to understand the system. My point is, yeah, let's not put them in that situation. Let's make something simpler uh, so that you can't, you know, it's, it's yeah, a little it needs more to be Murphy proof, right? I mean, you, yeah, exactly. That, well, this is my you know, part sailor proof. You know, yeah. it's just it's like your car, like the car. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter if you got a Nissan or a Toyota or a Ford. The steering wheel does. You turn the wheel, go to the right. It goes to the right. You step on the gas pedal, the car accelerates. What happens after that? You don't care about. All you know is that well, you know what the car is going right. to do. And I think we would be better served um, looking at simplifying some of these systems. It starts with the bridge system. But I'm not satisfied that's the only place that it needs to go uh, shipwide. So if you're asking me, you know, where does where does the Naval Sea Systems Command see itself relative to what came out of the comprehensive review and the lessons learned from Fitzgerald and McCain, those are the two big things. Got to get the ships out of maintenance on time. And two, as we design these systems, we got to do a lot of more human factor engineering. And we got to, just because we can make it more complex doesn't mean we should. Uh, it, it seems, you know, to have... Touch screens and drop-down menus and all that, that seems like a, a natural, you know, we were just talking about, uh, a qu- you, you got a question about being on the cloud, right? And, and, and so um, it just seems like if you get in a configuration where it's you may not know what you just did, there should be like a warning that comes up and be advised, this guy now has steering, be advised only one screw and, you know, where the thing would tell you, do you know, yeah. like when you're about to do a purchase at Amazon, are you sure you want to buy this, yeah. right? That kind of thing, so. Um, uh, last issue, because uh, I know you got to head to the airport here, um, with the, the the budget situation and you know CRs, and we've had some in-depth conversations about th- how these play out. We talked to Admiral Swift about how that affects his uh, you know role. Where does this sort of budget uncertainty or uncertainty come down at? NAVC. What, how does this affect you? Besides just the fact that sometimes you got to send civil servants home for a day. Well, I think it's twofold. One, I think just the uncertainty that it creates with the workforce, uh, even if you're only gone for a day and having to go through this, um, it's just not an optimal way to work, one. Um, 
On the maintenance side of the house in particular, the private sector gets hurt the most. The, the naval shipyards are what we, are, what we call mission-funded. So that workforce, they're paid for, for the, you know, what we pay for them at the beginning of the year. And so you can bring ship carriers and nuclear-powered submarines and carriers in, and you're, you're good to go. Where, you, where we run into problems on the CR, though, is that the private sector, uh, those are, you know, we fund those contracts as we go. And so uh, what the, inevitably what happens in a CR is, you know, we try to lay out the maintenance throughout the year and when we're going to start availabilities, and we try and give the private sector a stable, predictable plan to do the maintenance. But if you don't have the money in the first quarter to do the maintenance, what happens is you, you, know, you move that ship to the, into the second quarter and you continue to do that. And so what happens is, you know, we, we either do one of two things. Either we sub-optimize the system by intentionally never planning work in the first quarter of the fiscal year, which is kind of what we're trying to do now, but that's not great either. Or we end up uh, jamming a bunch of availabilities into the fourth quarter, and when the money finally arrives, you know, we're, we rush to get them under contract, we, we rush to build a work package for the ship, and then we hand it to the contractor you know, 30 to 60 days prior to the ship's availability and say, okay, go build work package and do maintenance. It's a, it's a crazy way to do work, and it doesn't give them enough time to plan. And so they get in there, they get into the ship, we have cost overruns, it takes us longer to, to build, to, you know, to get the ships out of the availability. It's a very vicious cycle. And so, you know, that's the biggest impact to me on a regular basis is the, it's the private sector maintenance. And it's, you know, they are, they're half of the maintenance that we do. It's they're, you know, protecting the health of the private sector repair industrial base is everybody's important is protecting the health of the the big yards that that are the new construction yards and so uh, this the CR ongoing CRs is really debilitating to them and it's debilitating to surface ship readiness and so you go look at McCain and Fitzgerald I'm not saying that the CR directly was responsible for that but it's a contributor and it's just symptomatic of the challenges that we're going to have trying to generate the readiness that we need and as you know one of the six elements of naval power that the CNO is talking about. Well, I really know you've got to head to the uh, to get going to Hawaii. Thank you for uh, carving uh, some time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Proceedings Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you back in the greater D.C. area very soon. Okay. Safe travels. Happy to do it again, just uh, for truth and advertising, also just for your, your listening audience out there. So not only were we in the same company together, we actually played in a, in a band together. Yes. Uh, while we were at the Naval Academy, of course, Ward went Back on when to, the music mattered. Yeah, he went on to much greater things playing in the musical world, and I have now followed up behind him and now playing in a band myself, but not uh, quite to the heights of glory that uh, Ward had in his in his playing days. Those, those were good times up there on 4-4 four, four and 4-3. Four, <laughs> they were. Bringing the music to the people. So at some some point, your class will move on, and my class will move into this prominent role that, that your class Probably, because so. uh, we've been around so long. <laughs> Although 81 relieved 82... That's right. For the Airbus, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it just ebbs and flows. But, right. uh, yeah, I will say that uh, uh, very proud of what, what Admiral Moore has, has, has done, and he was one of the good ones back in the day. Um, so it's really, it does my heart good to see, uh, to see. I will also say another sort of sea story here. Um, what people may not know if you look at Admiral Moore's bio is he did a lot of the hard jobs. He's a perfect fit for, for his role now, and I particularly saw him when I was Adair Lant, he was working on Enterprise, because he mentions Enterprise. And that was a tough one to get out of the yard. So he knows about riding herd on the shipyard. So he's really, you know, uh, equipped to get it right for the problem before us now. And so I'll just point that out to the audience, too. Thanks. I hope you'll invite me back. Yes, yeah, indeed. Well, thank you, sir. Okay.
Thanks All right, so everybody, that's Thanks, it for sir. this week. We'll see you next week back in Annapolis. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.